something hopeful, something that we can, uh, that can really kind of carry us through into 2018. Uh, as many of us in this room have um, been uh, given a lot of bumps and bruises along the way in the past year, it's been a tough year, and uh, so I figured this morning, let's have a simple message of hope. Um, because I know that, like I said, for many of us, this past year has been, um, well, to be frank, it, it sucked. And uh, in the past 365 days, I personally have attended three funerals of friends, close family friends, uh, people who were dear to our friends, dear to our family, who were laid to rest far too soon, including this, this past week, we uh, laid to rest a dear friend of ours. And I know many of us in this room have kind of gone through that as well. My wife and I were talking the other night um, about just how much despair there is in our own sort of little context, our own little circle of friends. In the past year, uh, we have had friends who um, sub- some of them have separated, uh, including this past Christmas, some friends that just kind of came out of nowhere. We were surprised. And it's never easy to receive that kind of news or to know what to do in those contexts. Um, another friend we, we have, another close friend, has been dealing with addictions over the past year or so. And it's like sticky, uncomfortable, awkward addiction type thing. You never know what to do, how to handle that. Um, and try to enter into that situation and do the best you can, but you always feel sort of like at a loss. And, and just beyond um, our own lives and in, our, in this own community, um, as Maybe many of you saw this on the news this week, and, and sometimes you see, you, know, you see this stuff on, on the news all the time, and, and sometimes it just hits you kind of right in the feels, but you heard about that mother in Winnipeg who uh, was found, a mother of four was found on the streets of Winnipeg, frozen, and you think, like, ugh, there's words that come to your mind that you just shouldn't say. And just for kicks, uh, as I was preparing this message, I went on the old CBC uh, website to learn that there was a Twitter feud going on south of the border. Surprise, surprise. And that world leaders are actually determining the future of humanity on a social media platform as they battle or as they talk about who has the bigger button for nuclear wars. And I wish I was kidding when I say stuff like that. Like that is a, just a ridiculous statement to say, isn't it? That like the fate of humanity can be decided on Twitter. Isn't that crazy? So... Stories like this can easily uh, fill us with despair and this sense of hopelessness. Um, they've been cause for a number of us in this community, I know, to um, experience a faith crisis in the past year. Many of us are still maybe in the midst of that, trying to sort out um, what we believe about God, letting go of some of the constructs that we've held about God our whole lives, and trying to make sense of this world and of God's role in this world and in our role of this world. And, and in many ways, it's a good thing to go through, but in some ways, it's really hard, especially when you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And of course, 2017 wasn't all bad. There's lots of good things that happened as well. I know in our community, some people, uh, some families welcome new members into their family. Congrats. Um, I think our Syrian friends, they found a house, I think that was in 2017, wasn't it? They found a house. That's exciting news. Um, some other friends of ours, who many of you know, recently uh, had an adoption go through, and they welcomed a three-year-old boy from China, which you know was many years in the process and ups and downs and bumps and bruises along the way, but they were able to welcome their little boy, and he's a beautiful little boy. We got to meet him over Christmas. It was wonderful. 
and maybe on not quite as monumental a scale, I read this week that Scott Weeb, where's Scott? Is he? Oh, he's probably in Sunday school. Scott Weeb ran 2,700 kilometers this year. <laughs> that is incredible. That average is 13 and a half, almost 14 kilometers a day, which frankly is just ridiculous, but that's a good news story. Sarah, how many books did you write this past year? Seven adult, or no, young adult sci-fi books. How many have become bestsellers? Three. So we have a best-selling author in our community. So it's not all bad, but I, overall, if you're like me, you have to think that, or you have to maybe see that the weight of 2017 has pressed down hard on us, and it hurts maybe a bit more than it has in past years. Um, I heard this week that antidepressants have become the third most prescribed drug in North America. And depression is the number one leading cause of um, disability worldwide. There is a dearth of hope in our world. And people are to be in despair. And if I'm honest, I feel like it's warranted. And I don't mean to be a, you know, a Debbie Downer this morning. But there is a, just a lot of crummy stuff that's been happening in the past year to this community and to this world in general. And, and sometimes the best way to move forward is, first of all, just to own that and say, hey, let's, let's confess that that's right or that that's true and then, then move on from there. And this morning I want to talk about that, not the despair, not to downplay the reality of this despair or its causes, but actually, if we can, provide a hope-filled response to it. And not some you know, pie-in-the-sky kind of wishful thinking uh, hope that isn't really grounded in, in truth, but a hope that is built in the very fabric of our theology as Christians. Um, I want to take a look at Matthew 19. This is, uh, just to give you a bit of context, Jesus had just finished speaking with the rich young ruler. Maybe you will be familiar with that story. And this rich young ruler had asked, how, are we, how am I to um, earn eternal life? How can I find eternal life? And Jesus tells him all this stuff, keep the commandments and all this. And then he says, oh, one more thing. Sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And of course, the rich young ruler turns away uh, disappointed because he's got a lot of wealth. And so Peter, in astonishment to this episode taking place, turns to Jesus, and in verse 27, he says, we have left everything to follow you. Unlike that rich young ruler, we've actually given up everything. So what then will there be for us? What then will there be for us? Jesus doesn't rebuke him and say, come on, Peter. Virtue is its own reward. No, he turns to him and he says, well, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So let's stop there. Now, Jesus here in this context is talking about the end. And you can call it what you will. Call it the second coming of Christ. Call it the culmination of the ages. You can call it life after death 2.0. You can call it whatever you want. But the end of the age that Jesus is referring to here is the renewal of all things. This, this word renewal of all things comes from 
two words, palin, or one word, conjunction of two words, palingenesia. Palin, meaning uh, a would-be vice president from Alaska. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> meaning, again, genesia, meaning beginnings. So, literally, beginning again. Or, uh, you may be familiar with that word, genesia, genesis. Genesis means beginning. So, genesis again, or another way of saying it is Eden, restored, beginning again. So at the beginning again, the new beginning, the restoration of all things. The message calls it the recreation of the world. The New Living says, when the world is made new. The, uh, King James says the regeneration. It's this idea of taking what's old and tired and worn out, not replacing it, but making it new. Restoring it. N.T. Wright, who's familiar to many of us in this room, says this about creation beginning again. He says, to put it bluntly, creation is to be redeemed. That is, space is to be redeemed. Time is to be redeemed. And matter is to be redeemed. God said very good over space, time, and matter creation. And though the redeeming of this world from its presence... Sorry, and... Though the redeeming of this world from its present corruption and decay will mean transformations we cannot imagine, the one thing we can be sure of is that this redeeming of creation will not mean that God will say of space, time, and matter, oh, well, nice try, good while it lasted, but obviously gone bad, so let's drop it and go for a non-spatial, temporal, non-material world instead. In other words, God's not erasing this earth and going back to the drawing board to remake it. Nor is he taking us out of this world in some sort of ethereal, you know, spirit world where we will inhabit forever. Now, for most of us in this room, and I dare say the quite majority, none of us uh, should be surprised at any of this right now. This should be, um, you know, this is part and parcel to grassroots theology. We believe that this is what the Bible teaches about the end times, uh, the, the renewal of all things. Um, the problem, though, is that this should bring us an incredible sense of hope of joy-filled, energizing, life-giving, kind of grab life by the horns and run every day kind of hope. And so, why doesn't it? I mean, to be honest, how many of us spend much time anticipating this new creation? Thinking about what it entails, what life is going to be like at the culmination of all things when everything has been made new again. You know, I give it a lot of lip service. And I, sometimes I have these kind of fleeting thoughts, well, yeah, that's going to be pretty cool. But I never really dwelt on it. And I think I have a reason, an understanding to why that is. And maybe there are many reasons, but I, I've kind of come down to just two. Um, and the second reason kind of comes out of the first. And the, a few weeks ago, I was doing devotions with our sons. We have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. And we were uh, talking about the inevitability of death, as you do with six- and eight-year-olds. And, uh, and so we're sitting around the bed, and we're talking about this, and, and I could tell my eight-year-old didn't, he wanted to say something, but he was a little bit hesitant to say it. So I had to cajole it out of him. And he says to me finally, Dad, I'm not that excited about going to heaven. That he really liked life here on earth. It seemed pretty exciting. He enjoyed the, the things he got to do. And as he understood heaven, it wasn't that exciting to him. And so somewhere along the line, 
Our son Cameron had been handed this narrative about the afterlife that most likely many of us in this room are quite familiar with. And it sounds something like this. When you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell, where you will spend forever. Following so far? And if you go to heaven, you essentially are going to sit at the feet of God, where you will worship him forever. Like a giant church service in the sky that just keeps going on and on and on. Except somehow you're going to really, really enjoy it. <laughs> right? We're laughing because we're like, yeah, I totally know that story, aren't we? Don't we? Most of us have grown up thinking that that's what's going to be like when things culminate in the end. And we get, things, we get words like this in, our, in hymns. Um, Classic Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, don't worry, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. Worship leaders will talk about how great it is to one day worship at the throne of God forever. And and these are earnest and and heartfelt desires, I have no doubt, but as we've already read, they're not necessarily biblical. Or at least they're not the entire picture. Are they? It's not what's going to happen at the restoration of all things. Some people were asked what they thought the afterlife would be like, and one guy kind of captured it well. He said, uh, there's kind of nothingness. Somehow I will transform into some being that's okay with having their face on the ground in front of God for eternity and almost being afraid for eternity. But apparently what I was told was hell was worse than that, so... That's what I should want, is those are my only options. So, I think this is the first lesson about why we lack hope, is that the great, stunning hope that we've been offered by God is just not all that exciting. It's not really something we're anticipating that much. And so I can't blame my eight-year-old son for not being all that excited about it, because I've been a Christian for 20 years, and as much as I love God and I'd love to worship Him, the idea of spending eternity doing that, it really makes me not hopeful at the end of the day. And the second thing flows out of this. Um, the author John Eldridge, as many of you maybe are familiar with, he wrote a new book recently called All New Things, or All Things New. And uh, it's an excellent book. I encourage you to read it. I've referenced it a lot in this message this morning. He says this, Most sincere believers believe that life is eventually lost, that everything you love, everything you hold dear, all of it eventually gets destroyed or burned up or goes away and we go somewhere else to spend our eternal life. A vague heaven, like I said, a worship service that lasts forever, something like that. If you think about it, this is bang on. Our children grow up and they leave us. And, you know, we're told by everyone around us who's gone before us, oh, hold on to those moments with your kids. They won't last forever. But you can try holding on to them, and they still will pass. Um, Celebrations come. Celebrations go. People get sick. The great vacations always inevitably end. Circumstances changed. Loved ones die. Even the best memories are eventually going to fade into oblivion. Everything actually is lost. And that's just not very hopeful, is it? 
Even if you consider heaven, this narrative of heaven, heaven doesn't promise getting any of this back. In fact, some people believe that when we go to heaven, we won't even be able to, we won't know who each other are. We will just be like completely new to the point where we don't even know our wives, our children, our, our friends. So we cling to everything in this life in vain. Talk about hopelessness. Talk about fleeting, just kind of like, ugh. What? You know, how, how can you be filled with hope if everything you cherish and everything you love on this earth is eventually just a loss anyway? So, why do we lack hope? We lack hope because the great stunning hope we've been offered is not all that exciting, and because everything on earth that we love and cherish is going to be lost anyway, so big whoop. Um, it's kind of hard to have hope when that's a prerogative deep down, isn't it? To take a C.S. Lewis quote that's very familiar and kind of cliche, he says this, We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And the reality is I don't think we're actually easily pleased. We've just resolved ourselves to accept it because we can't imagine anything greater. And so I want to challenge this idea this morning because I've been reading lately uh, this great eschaton, this great culmination of all things at the end of the ages, this palingenesia, is actually really, really hopeful when you study it. And I think the church needs to study this more intently. And when properly understood, when we meditate on it, this renewal of all things can provide a framework from which we should be compelled to see our despairing world through. So how do we redeem that hope that is ours for the taking? How do we grab a hold of that? Well, we begin first and foremost, I think, by confessing that nothing's lost. That this idea of burning it all down and starting over or taking us out of our bodies into some you know, other world, escaping this present evil world, that these are destructive ideas that unfortunately have registered in the psyche of the church throughout history with emphasis in the last 30 to 40 years especially, in fact. But these are ultimately hope-destroying, faith-crushing doctrines that don't have any value. See, the renewal of all things announced by Jesus in Matthew 19, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 56, Acts 3, Philippians 3, Romans 8, Revelation 20 and 21, all through the Scripture. It's not just one or two obscure passages. The renewal of all things is a major theme of Scripture, folks. This is referring to the renewal of the world that we love, that we are a part of. It's a promise that everything in this world that we love, that a God originally called good, will be restored unto us. It will be made new. Notice in Revelation 21, Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new again. He doesn't say, Behold, I have made all new things. As in, I've started over. I've gotten rid of everything, and I'm starting with brand new things. He's taking everything that exists already in this world, and he's making them new again. The key to hope, first and foremost, is to believe be convicted that nothing will be lost. Nothing you cherish, nothing that is good will be lost. So we begin with this firm conviction, and from this, there are so many implications. Uh, we can talk about um, 
<coughs> Excuse me. We can talk about the restoration of all things starting with creation and the wonder of that. And that creation will be restored. We can talk about our bodies being made new. What that will look like. We can talk about um, culture being redeemed. We talk about all these wonderful things in our world. I want to focus on two things this morning. And just for a few minutes each before we close. Uh, that kind of spoke to me and I, and I hope, I think, will resonate with, within this community. The first thing is our relationships will be renewed and our purpose or our purposes will be restored. So, starting with our relationships, we go back to Matthew 19, verse 29. Everyone, Jesus says, who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or property, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. So not only will our bodies be restored, our culture restored, our creation restored, but our relationships will be as well. And yes, of course, this means being reunited with those who we've lost, who've gone before us. Of course, that in itself should fill us with just incredible hope, incredible joy. But there's more. When you look at Revelation 20, it talks about um, sin and evil and death being thrown into the burning lake of fire where it will burn forever. And whatever that metaphor might mean, we can say for certain that at the restoration of all things, at the palingenesia, there won't be any sin. There won't be anything that will um, separate us from one another. I'm not sure about you, but in my relationships with other humans, they're not perfect. Have you ever been jealous of someone? Have you ever been envious of others or have others been envious of you and it's gotten in the way of your friendship with them? Has there been shame between you and another person? Have you felt shame about yourself and the relationship you have with yourself? Do you have relationships with certain people in your life where you love them deep down and yet, you know that you'll never go beyond a surface level relationship with you because as many times as you've tried, it failed and you've only brought pain and hurt. Do you ever feel that people misunderstand you and then they dismiss you? Do you ever dismiss other people because you're not willing to understand them? Do you think you're better than other people? Do you think other people are better than you and it makes you feel like crap? Do you have regrets about how you treated someone and that regret just kind of lingers in between you and them and it prevents you from having uh, meaningful relationships? If you've said yes to any of this, congrats, you're human. But more importantly, you're human. You're a human who's stuck in the confines of a creation um, that is deeply, that has sin deeply embedded into it. And a, a creation in which sin uh, is able to tear apart all these relationships where lies and cheating and backstabbing and gossiping and all this stuff gets in the middle of our relationships and prevents us from being able to reconcile with each other. And so first of all, as we anticipate new creation, there is this um, command, I believe, this onus on us to be seeking to restore those relationships in the here and now. I'm Absolutely. But I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is the hope that's given to us at the culmination of all things. When sin is gone, 
And all those people that we've struggled with, that we love, that we cherish in this world will be reunited with us. That should fill us with incredible hope. Amen? That's the kind of stuff that should get us excited about life. And stop and think about someone in your life for a second who just, like, you, the person in your life right now who you love, but you do not have a healthy relationship with. Think about them. And now think about hanging out with them at the feast, uh, what is it, the great wedding feast at the end of time or whatever it is that Jesus pitches, paints a picture of. Hanging out with them, you know, getting in the past the, I'm going to say turkey, but I don't know if there's going to be turkey. I mean, will there be meat there? I, we're not sure. Um, whatever the delicious food parcels part of, you know, are in front of you, asking them to pass that. And being able to just connect with them and relate to them as it was meant to be from the beginning. How beautiful is that? That to me is something that as I, th- I stop and think, okay, these relationships won't be lost. That means that those people in my life right now who I struggle with and that take up all this headspace and all this energy trying to sort out how I'm supposed to respond to them or how can I make things better with them, stuff that I've tried in vain my entire life in this broken um, world to, to fix will one day be restored and I don't have to try anymore and it'll be perfect. So our relationships, number one, will be restored unto us. That is a beautiful thing and a great way to be filled with hope as we begin 2018. But not only that, our purposes as well. So, again, many of us think about this eternal church service in the sky. Uh, That's sort of our default posture. Um, Or maybe we picture, like I said, the great wedding feast of the Lamb, the giant celebration with Jesus and all of our loved ones gathered together. But that's kind of like the extent of our understanding or our imagination. Because what happens when the dinner's done? What happens when the feast is over? What do we do now? Again, John Eldridge helps with this. He says that God is uh, telling one long, continuous story about history. And, And so he begins in Genesis. And in Genesis, he creates sons and daughters. And those sons and daughters, he says, are creative. They are talented. They are powerful beings, just like him. And he gives us the earth And he says, reign, rule over the earth. Psalm says says this, the heaven of heavens is for God, but he puts us, man, in charge of the earth. This is our domain to rule over. And then God sort of puts these Easter eggs throughout the story. You know what an Easter egg is? It's kind of like this inside joke or uh, like a, a hidden message. Uh, within, that's planted within the story, and those who know kind of are like, ah, they got like a bit of a tip to it. They see what's going on there. And so the Easter egg in this story that God has started are things like music, science, architecture. You know, you know things that we have the joy of discovering in life. Studying history, painting, cooking, I don't know if there's going to be fish in there, Alex. <laughs> Bible doesn't say No, there will be. Don't worry. And we will go fishing a lot. <coughs> and we'll have all the time in the world to do it. <coughs> Literally. He gives every one of us talents, and he gives us abilities to carry these tasks of reigning uh, on the earth out. 
And so as the story unfolds, we see that this is a, you know, a beautiful story, a glorious story, but it's also a story of tragedy. And of course, we know this story. It's a story in which the creation itself becomes broken and falls in disrepair. And so then Jesus comes to earth and he rescues us. And so what's accomplished at the cross begins the restoration and process of making all things new, of restoring this creation with the ultimate goal of having all of creation ultimately restored some future time down the road. And then Jesus comes back at that point down the road, and he takes us all home, out, out of here, to some other place, or so the story has often been told, is if God closes that book, that story, and says, okay, now I'm going to begin another story over here. But that's not what happens. See, actually, the story continues in the next chapter where we're still reigning as sons and daughters. Listen to this. Revelation says, And they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So that reigning on the earth continues. We continue to rule, to take control over the earth as it was from the beginning. Remember, we were creative, talented beings. Why would those creativities and those talents and those passions suddenly dry up? Why would they be stopped? So we will continue to live. But now, in this new context, in this restored context, we are living in a whole new way. The purposes and the passions that we live for now will be made perfect within the context of the regeneration of our world. All those passions you have, all those hobbies you enjoy doing, like fishing, all those things in this world that give you joy and that make your heart sing will continue in the new world. This is what N.T. Wright says in Surprised by Hope. He says, so far from sitting on clouds playing harps, which is the cliche that often we've been given, as people often imagine, the redeemed people of God in the new world will be the agents of his love, going out in new ways to accomplish new creative tasks, to celebrate and extend the glory of his love. In other words, the purposes and the passions that ignite the fire in you now, whatever they might be, they're not going to be extinguished in the renewed earth. Eldridge notes that at the great wedding feast, who's going to make the food? You think it's just going to plop down in front of us? Who's going to make the furniture, the chairs, the tables that we sit at? Will they just poof, pop out of the sky? I mean, we don't really know. But it's not a hard thing to imagine that those who are passionate about cooking, who want to use their gifts to benefit and bless others, might be cooking. Those who are carpenters, who love building things with their hands, might be building that furniture. And it takes a bit of imagination for us to kind of get out of this old, you know, life-after-death thinking that so many of us have been handed and we bought into. But I think it's a really hope feeling, inspiring um, process to think this way. So our relationships and our purposes, redeemed, they're restored, they're made new again. The things that we love, the people that we love, we get to keep doing that in the new earth, in, the new, in this new world. Consider what that's going to look like in your life. So this morning I want to close with two, th- two things. First, uh, one more quote from Eldridge that I think should give us pause, and it's this. More than anything else, how you envision your future shapes your current experience. If you knew that God was going to restore your life and everything you love any day, 
If you believed a great and glorious goodness was coming to you, not in you know, a vague heaven, but right here on this earth, you would have a hope to see you through anything. Listen to that. You would have a hope to see you through anything. No matter how crappy your life can get, if we can cling to this promise, this promise of a renewed, restored earth in which nothing will be lost, this hope will be an anchor for our soul, an unbreakable spiritual lifeline reaching past all appearances right into the very presence of God. Which is a quote straight out of Hebrews 6. How we think of our future destiny shapes how we are going to live now. If our hope is in this God who has promised all this stuff, what does that mean for how I live now? It should do something to us. It's been doing something to me in the last couple of days that I've been studying this. I, I've never really looked in depth at these truths that Scripture has spoken about so throughout the, the pages of Scripture. And, and my, you know, many, like many of you, my hope sort of fizzled out somewhere between um, the clouds and singing hymns for eternity, and you just kind of like, uh, well, I guess I have to like that. And so I want to be guided by this life-giving hope, and I hope you do too. All the junk in life, it still sucks. It doesn't make the existing situation any better, to be honest. It doesn't make those situations disappear. But what it does do is it provides a framework from which we can look through and to be able to see that it's not in vain that the suffering, that the loss that we experience is not eternal, that there will be a restoration of all things. And we can get on board with that. We can, I think, we, I think it's enough to sustain us in this world. It's enough to sustain us in 2018, isn't it? And the last thing I want to do is just leave this simple task with you. You don't have to do this right now if you don't want to. You don't... Um, to do this at all, but I know that these words can just kind of stay up here at the pulpit if we don't do things with them. So I want to challenge you, take out your phone or find a piece of paper or something. And, and as we've looked at, um, you know, the, these things that will be restored unto us. And the, again, setting this new sort of framework before us for how, to, it's not a new framework, but reviving this framework of hope. That, uh, that we're called to have and called, called to believe in. Think about something in your life that excites you when you consider it being restored. Maybe it's something we've talked about, our relationships, our passions. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's the creation. Maybe it's going out in this world. Maybe it's a particular person who is sick. Maybe it's someone who you've lost. Maybe it's your own body being restored. Take just a second and think about, write it down on your phone, write it down on a piece of paper, something that will give you, something specific that will give you hope for, that will, will be enough to carry you forward. And I would love to share some of the things I'm doing, but those are pretty personal some of the relationships in my life that I would love to have restored and renewed and, and made perfect. Um, and maybe you have those as well. In a world where evil will not have any connection, any uh, presence, I mean, it's hard for us to imagine that kind of world. But 
Think of something and, and then put it in your wallet, keep it on your phone. And as 2018 goes through, goes on, as this year continues, and there are no promises that this year is going to be any better than last year, by the way. But as you go through the bumps and, and the bruises of 2018, pull that piece of paper out or that little thing out and just be like, oh yeah, this is my little lifeline to hope. This, this is what I can bank on in Christ. This is going to be made right someday. Whatever this will be. I think that's it. Well, that is it. That's all the slides I have. So let's pray. And uh, I'll ask the band to come up as we um, come before the table this morning.